All right. Please don't get ahead on the worksheet. I appreciate your eagerness with that. It's going to take us a little while to get into it. Um, that's all right. That's good. I actually was in Richmond, Virginia two nights ago on Tuesday night and was able to offer this workshop there um, at a church called Redemption Hill. And um, I'm really eager for tonight to try to fix some of those mistakes that I made on Tuesday night, see if I learned some lessons. I saw a young child looking over the worksheet, looking very confused by it, and I wanted to tell him that makes two of us. Um, there's a lot there and a lot to be overwhelmed by, but hopefully it'll be a blessing to us by the end of the night. But in all seriousness, please don't look ahead. Um, I'd like to just chat with you for a little while. So as Jonathan said, my name's Ted. Is it okay that I move this? I, m- I remember that it can be feeble at times, a little flimsy. Uh, and and one f- one-fourth of my life is helping um, steward the CBR Journal. So the CBR Journal, we actually have a new website, cbrjournal.com. It does a lot better job of telling the story of what God's doing in and through the CBR Journal. But the mission of the CBR Journal is this. It's to, it's to help us uh, connect with God through His Word and to help us connect with one another in His Word on a daily basis. And so... The vision of, the mission of, the goal of the CBR Journal is to see uh, lots of people uh, connecting with God uh, through His Word and then uh, connecting with one another um, in His Word. And so with that goal in mind, we've created these workshops um, to try and help build the numbers of people who are not just reading the Bible and uh, not just... Um, trying to figure out uh, how to squeeze uh, another chore into their, into their life. We're, we're writing these workshops in hopes of helping people uh, really connect with God and with one another. And so what we're doing, some of the workshops um, are not like this one, but this one really addresses a specific challenge that we consistently hear from folks that they encounter when it comes to reading the Bible and, and quite honestly, that challenge is trying to figure out how to work their way through the Old Testament. Um, and so if you've been in and around the church for a while, if you've been in and around the Bible for a while, that may resonate with you. It certainly resonates with me. And so what we did is we created this workshop uh, that we call Expectations. So the first thing I'd like to have us do is I'd like to have you um, help me define expectation and trepidation I have this problem that I try to alliterate everything, and I also try to make things end in I-O-N. And um, so trepidation is just a, it's a bad word for, for fear. And then, uh, and then on this side of things, anticipation. And on this side, hesitation. I'm not sure where that, I guess that'll be an E. So help me define these words. Help me come up with synonyms for these words, uh, but also help me illustrate these words. So when do you see people experiencing expectation? When do you see people experiencing anticipation? When do you see people experiencing hesitation and trepidation? Does that make sense? What I want is I want to have in your mind's eye real people experiencing these real things so that when we're done, even if a lot of the content tonight is overwhelming or maybe even confusing for you, you could at least say the big idea for the workshop 
was that I would experience these two things instead of these two things. So I want to get in our mind's eye, I don't know, maybe a child opening a Christmas gift for expectation. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm sorry? A baby coming. Yes, that is trepidation. <laughs> Amen. What else? Yes, expect- so yeah, a glorious reality coming in the future. Anticipation, excitement. What else? Summer? Which one? Okay, anticipation. Counting down the days. So you can imagine a, a school-aged person or someone who loves school-aged people, uh, a mom, let's say, getting excited about summer coming. What else? Yeah, ha- knowing that you need to have a hard conversation, trepidation. A new job. A little bit of both maybe, right? Yeah, a mixture of both. Good. What else? I had a mom in Richmond say that she has a 7-year-old and a 10-year-old, and they have Bush Garden tickets, and the 10-year-old has ridden all the roller coasters. The 7-year-old is finally getting to that point where they're tall enough to ride roller coasters. And so when they get to the roller coaster that the 7-year-old is now tall enough to ride, the 10-year-old runs in, but the 7-year-old is looking at it, calculating it, thinking about it, trying to decide if they really want to do it. Right there at that same moment, one's flying in with anticipation, one's experiencing trepidation. Yeah, that's great. That's great. <laughs> yep, nope, I'm out of here. Yeah, good. What else? Yeah, yeah. Not sure. About to pull the trigger on a big decision. Uh, I, I, w- I spent time on a plane to Huntsville, Alabama a few weeks ago. Uh, with a young man who actually works uh, for a nonprofit, and uh, this nonprofit goes to third world countries that have experienced war, and they basically uh, clear out uh, a battleground that either has landmines in it or munitions in it that did not explode or whatever. And so uh, basically this gentleman's given his life to try and protect innocent people uh, from uh, the, the baggage, if you will, the wreckage of war. And so he's explained to me the process, the meticulous, slow uh, process um, of them in their gear trying to walk through uh, a field, let's say, and, and trying to figure out where the bombs are. And so he's like, it's very slow. And he's actually uh, going to Huntsville for two reasons. One reason, there's a lot of uh, military um, uh, personnel in Huntsville, and there's a lot of organizations that, that serve the military. And he was going there trying to get companies to give them their old technology, their old equipment that they don't use anymore so that that would at least speed up and maybe make them uh, more effective at the mission that they had. And, but there's a second reason he was going to Huntsville is because he was engaged to a girl uh, in Huntsville and his fiance uh, was in Huntsville. And so I, f- I travel a ton, I have long legs, I can usually walk faster than most people. And I would say to you that this is one of the few people in my life who beat me uh, out of the terminal uh, to where people are standing because you can imagine the anticipation having been uh, he was on location for three months hadn't seen her he was going to get to see her right so compare him a couple days earlier slowly 
nervously with trepidation walking through an old battlefield to running forward with expectation and anticipation of seeing the woman he loves. So those, those are the pictures that I want to get into our minds, okay? And, and just right off the bat, uh, I just want you to understand that the enemy wants us to experience these things when we think about entering into the Old Testament. And I'm telling you that when we're biblical in our Bible reading, we will experience these things when we enter into the Old Testament. We're going to unpack that tonight, but that's the big idea. If you get confused, if you get bored, if you're like, I'm not even sure he's right, I just want you to know that's the big idea, okay? So here, here's the second brainstorm for tonight. I, I really would like for you to keep um, your eyes off of your paper so that you don't get ahead of where we're trying to go. So <clears throat> let's say this represents uh, the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the cross. Can we all agree that we can let that re- represent the life, death, re- Okay, good. And let's just say that these are all the events in human history prior to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Okay? And let's say that these are all the events, you get the point, after. Okay? So then let's say this is sort of Adam and Eve right here. This is sort of still happening. And so let's say, let's, let's use this. Oh, I've already drawn very poorly, and I almost used my finger to, to fix the problem. So here is what we most commonly refer to uh, as the Old Testament. So this is a reality written by God through humans to help us understand what was going on, what what is going on and what was going on in these events. Does that make sense? So the Old Testament was before Jesus, right? But the Old Testament is not the exact same as the historical events before Jesus. But there's a good and faithful representation of these events in the Old Testament. Make sense? Okay, and so then we'll say that right here is the New Testament. And then we'll say that this is the New Testament church. You with me? And here's my question for you. Does the New Testament tell the New Testament church that some things in the Old Testament are ultimately or were ultimately written to lead you to Jesus? That all or everything in the Old Testament was ultimately written to lead you to Jesus, or that none of the New Testament. So in other words, does the New Testament tell the New Testament church to think about the Old Testament as if there's a few things in here that might lead to Jesus, that might ultimately be about Jesus, that might primarily be about Jesus? Does it say that all of it was originally and ultimately written by God to take you to Jesus? Or does it say that none of it has anything to do with Jesus? It is a real question, but I don't want you to give the real answer. It's rhetorical. 
Every book of the Old Testament. All right, so I like that very middle of the road answer. So are you advocating some or all? He's, uh, we have someone voting for all. I'm sorry, I made a mess here. Someone voting for all. All right? I'm not going to let any bo- anybody vote for none. You might lose your membership. I would say practically, most Christians I run into think that some of the Old Testament was originally written by God to take them to Jesus. And I would say that I function like some of the Old Testament was originally written by God to take me to the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus, and God's saving work through him. Okay? And I will tell you this, to the extent that you believe all of the Old Testament was written to lead you to the saving work of God through Jesus, you'll experience these things when you enter in. And to the extent that you think some of those things in the Old Testament were always ultimately about Jesus, then you'll experience trepidation and hesitation. So let's keep, let's keep talking. These little blue things, these are crosses, okay? So I'll just I'll try to write that up here. What are some of the things in the Old Testament you're like, I'm pretty sure that that has always been about leading God's people to Jesus? Psalm 2, how so? Yep, I agree. Psalm 2. It's one of those messianic psalms. It's just pretty obvious that that God was, so you could say that one right there. We'll just call that Psalm 2. What else? Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Uh, I believe most often quoted passage um, in the New Testament. I've heard that said. I've not done the research. But at this age, I'm too tired to research anymore, so I'm going to say it's true. That's the one that says he bore our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed, etc., etc. Genesis 1. How so? Yeah, so Genesis 1 and John 1. Okay. Good. The proto-euangelion. The, 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 talking about the seed of the woman would crush the, the head of the serpent. The seed, okay, good. All right, so you guys are giving very good Presbyterian answers. What I would like for you to do now is to think about yours. So I would ask the question this way. <clears throat> um, what are some things in the Old Testament that you and yours would think clearly lead to Jesus? So now think about the people in your life that God's given you influence over that God is asking you to pour into, people that maybe children, grandchildren, neighbors, disciples, the seeker who's considering Christianity. Okay, now, what are some of the passages that they would say is, has always been about leading to the life, death, resurrection of Jesus and God's saving work through him? Do you see what I'm saying? How? Okay. 
Is that where God provides the ram? Okay. So Abraham and Isaac. Okay, good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, another popular one would be uh, the, the prophecy of the virgin birth. So I think that's Isaiah 7. Yeah, okay, good. Yeah, good. Bethlehem. Micah 5, okay. All right, cool. You get the point now, new color. Let's, let's talk about this question. It's the exact opposite. What are some things in the Old Testament that you and yours, because you would never actually say this because you're good Presbyterians, what are some of the things in the Old Testament that you and yours would hesitate, hesitate to think clearly lead to Jesus? So we will use, in this instance, a red X. Does that make sense? Levitical laws. I don't know how to spell that, but we'll just say that. Numbers. Yeah, so we'll, can we call that holy war? Okay, I'll just... That's usually what my seeker friends call it. Because some professor that they had called it that. What's that? Concubine, divided, that's divided in math, pieces. Okay, what else? Genealogies, yeah. Genesis 1 to 11, how so? Okay, so, yeah, so Genesis 1 to 11. Yeah, yeah, good, good, I got gotcha. you. I, I see what you're saying. It's hard for me to imagine that that's, the, they say that those are human, that that's the story of humanity. I'm sorry. Killing all the, all the blood? The blood, all the blood and killing. So we'll put that under holy war, smashing babies. Just so you know, we're going to have Drew give us answers to all these by the end of the night. It's going to be awesome. God's wrath. I like the New Testament God. The New Testament God is a God of grace. But I'm not sure about this God of wrath. Imprecatory Psalms. All right. Let me see if I've got any more in my notes from previous workshops. Oh, apocalyptic stuff. Yeah. We'll call them the wild prophets. It's not uncomfortable to read, but it is. I agree with you. You're like, how does that, if, my, if I'm going to buy into all of this leads to Jesus. How does that lead me to Jesus? All right? So here's another one that I hear more and more, and I don't know if you guys hear this or not, but racism. That you have 
that you have in the Old Testament uh, a racism connected to this holy war wherein this one group of people get to be blessed and other people, just because they were born in another race, they don't get to be. You see what I'm saying? And then they read in the New Testament, there's no Jew or Gentile. Greek, barbarian, Scythian, Slavian, Scythian something free, I don't know. Okay. Job, how so? It's just overwhelming suffering. Yeah, good, okay. Right, back to the mean God. Okay. Very good. We'll, we'll come back to some of these things. Not all of them, but certainly some of them. All right, if you would, look at your handout. Look at your handout. Read with me, not aloud, the big idea. To the extent... We understand, remember, and believe the New Testament's paradigm for the Old Testament. To that extent, we experience expectation and anticipation instead of trepidation and hesitation when we read the Old Testament. So, I would say that those three words, understand, remember, and believe, are important. That you can have a theoretical understanding of the New Testament's paradigm for the old and still experience trepidation and hesitation, either because you forget or because we doubt. So, but to the extent that we understand, remember, and believe the New Testament's paradigm for the old, we experience expectation and anticipation instead of trepidation and hesitation when we read the Old Testament. So what I want to do tonight is I want to break the night up into three sections with a break after this first section. And in the first section here, I want to talk about the New Testament's overarching paradigm for the Old Testament. What I'm going to do is I'm going to show you quite a few verses in the New Testament that clearly state that all of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Okay? I just want to, I just want to get the New Testament's paradigm or view of or understanding of the Old Testament. I just want to get it from 50,000 feet, I want to get that established in our minds. In the New Testament, Jesus clearly claims and the New Testament authors clearly presume that Jesus was always, was always what God was getting us ready for in the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament. And then after the break, we're going to look at a few particulars within the paradigm. So we're going to start looking at some of these realities inside the Old Testament and we're going to think about what we're going to look at what the New Testament says about them and how they are fulfilled in Christ how they foreshadowed Christ how they bore witness to Christ how they had to be accomplished in Christ and we can't, we of course can't cover everything because we're going to actually learn tonight that everything is about Jesus we don't have time to cover everything we have to cover the entire Old Testament but we want to cover enough particulars for us to say it is reasonable for me in the future to enter into the Old Testament through the lens of the cross and the perspective of this is going to first and foremost tell me about Jesus and not myself. So that's a win for me tonight. If at the end of the night you're like, I have some Bible verses I can go to to prove that all of this is about Jesus, that I have some examples of some of these in the red and some of these in blue being about Jesus, 
And it is more reasonable for me to open up the Old Testament with expectation and anticipation than it is trepidation and hesitation. Okay, that's, that's what we're going to try and do tonight. So number one, the New Testament's overarching paradigm for the Old Testament, okay? Because, and this is it. This is, I would say this is the paradigm the New Testament has for the Old Testament because the entire Old Testament was ultimately leading to God's saving work through Jesus. The entire Old Testament can always lead us to the salvation we have in Jesus. All right, so we're just going to jump through a lot of verses here. I'm going to try and go quick so it doesn't become uh, boring and uh, so it doesn't become overwhelming, but I just want to show you it's not hard to prove from the New Testament that the New Testament sees the Old Testament as being about Jesus. John 5, 39 to 40. Each one of these passages, I want us to answer the question, how do the following passages contribute to the New Testament's overarching paradigm for the Old Testament? So Jesus is speaking, he says, you, he's speaking to the Jews who are seeking to kill him. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. How does this passage help us understand the New Testament's paradigm for the Old Testament? Do you understand what I'm asking? He said, what's that? What does he say? All the, all the scriptures bear witness to me. So the Pharisees, the scribes, and the lawyers are the ones who are seeking to kill Jesus. What do we know about their Bible reading practices? Exemplary. They were amazing. They were meticulous. They were very strict. They would spend hours a day in the scriptures. And Jesus says to them, you are searching the scriptures because you're trying to find life in the scriptures. So either in their searching, they thought they were going to earn life, or they thought they were going to uncover something in the Old Testament that they weren't obeying yet that would eventually, through obedience, give them life. But they were scouring every nook and cranny of the Scriptures. And Jesus says, anytime you're in the Scriptures, you should run to me because they point to me. They bear witness to me. They're all about me. See that all-encompassing language? Do you see that? that, uh, that, that uh, what we're calling here overarching paradigm for the Old Testament. Luke 24, 25 to 27 and 32, I just, uh, I'll, I'll just read this because I think this is a familiar passage. And he, Jesus, said to them, the, the two going to Emmaus, O foolish ones uh, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And they said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while, we while he talked to us uh, on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So you remember this story. Two disciples are walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Jesus has, uh, has been crucified. Uh, the women have come back to the disciples and said, The tomb is empty. Uh, they're dismayed, they're sad, they're confused, um, their shoulders are down, their chins are on their chest. Jesus comes up to them to talk to them. He, he, he somehow makes it to where they can't recognize him, and he's asking them, why are you so upset? And they tell him why they're upset, and he says this. He says, you're foolish, you're slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then, uh, as I've already read, he says, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So the question is, the question is, how does 
uh, this passage contribute to the New Testament's uh, overarching paradigm for the Old Testament? I'm sorry? Yeah. Good. Yeah, so it, doesn't, it does not say, uh, Luke does not write um, that Jesus, uh, let me see if I can find this in my notes. Jesus interpreted to them, uh, okay, hold on, I'm getting turned around here. Okay, Luke writes, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He does not write, he interpreted to them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. What's the difference? If, he's, if he said he interpreted them in the scriptures all the things concerning himself, you would be looking for a few things here and there. Right, select scriptures. But he said he showed them in all the scriptures, all that the prophets had spoken, the things concerning himself. Does that make sense? So again, Jesus is claiming, and the New Testament authors are presuming, that it was always ultimately about Jesus. I love this word when he says, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, was it not necessary because when I'm reading the Old Testament Jesus feels really necessary and Jesus is like yeah God was creating a necessity and a need across the writing of the scriptures that could only be met in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus okay okay so next Luke 24 44 to 46, Jesus is with uh, the disciples in the upper room. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled, must be accomplished. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So how does this build the New Testament's paradigm for the Old Testament? Everything. Yeah. All-inclusive, all-encompassing, everything written. So what's, what's important about him talking about the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms? That's everything. So the Old Testament, the Old Testament follower of God broke their scriptures up into those three sections. And, and Jesus is saying it's not just the prophets who are getting you ready for me. It was all the way back at the beginning, from the very beginning through to the end. What does the word fulfilled mean? Completed, yeah. Accomplished, completed, filled up. When you read in the New Testament, every other time in the New Testament you read, thus it is written, what, what happens after that? They quote the Old Testament. Would anybody like to tell me where Jesus is quoting from here? That the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That's not a quote. That's a summary. Yeah, was, well, that's true. And since he, when he talks at Scripture, it was, okay, so you get the point. But Jesus is giving, the, is giving a summary. He says, thus it is written. The Messiah and the proclamation of the gospel. That, this is the whole thing. So, thus it is written. Okay? 
All right, Colossians 1, 25-26. This is Paul writing, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Okay, what is Paul referring to when he, when he writes the word of God? The Old Testament. What does this imply about the Old Testament before Paul uh, Paul's calling to make it fully known. It was a mystery, right? One of, one of Paul's favorite phrases for the Old Testament, if not his favorite phrase, is mystery. Right? So when you and I think of a mystery, we think of something happened and we wondered who did it. But Paul uses the word mystery as something needed to happen and they were wondering who could do it. Does that make sense? So... It's not that something happened and it's a mystery because we're wondering who did it. It's that something needs to happen and there's this tension growing of who could possibly do it. And Paul is saying that this cannot be fully known apart from the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. That God did not in 300 B.C. hold a council to figure out what to do with the mess known as the Old Testament. God did not at 300 B.C. say, what a mess. Does anybody have a good idea how to make sense of this thing? Everybody take a couple hundred years off. We'll meet back together in a couple hundred years. We'll try and figure this thing out. Right? That God was the entire time making Jesus necessary. That God was the entire time screaming Jesus' name. That God was the entire time uh, creating uh, um, creating this, this yearning for, this longing for, this need of, this expectation of Jesus. That that's what he was doing the whole time. And that now, when we look back uh, on the Old Testament, through the lens of the cross, we can actually fully know what's going on. But prior to that, it could not be fully known. So, Spurgeon famously said of the Old Testament, it's a well-furnished room dimly lit. That the Old Testament is a well-furnished room dimly lit. That then, of course, his analogy is that it, with Christ, a glorious light of illumination is now showing us what all of this fully means. A well-furnished room dimly lit. Colossians 2, 16-17. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So what's a shadow according to Paul? What are these things? This food, drink, festival, new moon, Sabbath. What are these things? Some of these Levitical laws, right? And so, okay, take this shadow, this substance shadow metaphor. What does that mean? Talk about the relationship between these Levitical laws, these ceremonial laws, and Christ. What's the, what is the relationship between a shadow and a substance? I'm sorry? Yeah, we'll come back to that later, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, just talk to me about the metaphor. Talk, talk to me about the metaphor. So what does the metaphor tell you? It, an outline, a reflection, right? Connected to, not the actual reality. I'm sorry? An image, yeah. An image that, that 
could at times be pretty clear as to what it is and sometimes be rather distorted. Right? So you understand that analogy? He's saying these are shadowy things. This is the substance. And again, now the analogy is that the light is shining this way. That these realities in the Old Testament are all connected in some way to Jesus. Some of them more obvious than others. But once the substance comes, the shadow gives way. Right? Okay? I, I give you an additional list of New Testament passages that teach that the entire Old Testament was always about God saving His people through Jesus. You can go and read through those on your own time. You will see the New Testament authors not quoting a passage in the Old Testament, right? Not referencing a figure in the Old Testament, but referencing either an entire section of the Old Testament or the whole Old Testament and just presuming that it was always about Jesus. All right, 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. Are you guys okay? The cookies will be here in like five minutes or ten. But as for you, Paul, writing to Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, Grandma Lois and Mama Eunice, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Okay, what are the sacred writings? I'm sorry? The Old Testament, right. So at this point, when Paul is writing Timothy, some New Testament books have been written. But he's not talking about those. He's talking about the ones he was acquainted with in his childhood which could not possibly be the Gospel of Mark or Galatians or Colossians. It has to be the Old Testament. Look what he says about the Old Testament. Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And does he say, stop reading the Old Testament because I've now written you a letter that will one day be the New Testament. And does he say, stop reading the Old Testament, read the Gospel of Mark. No, he says, continue on. Continue on in what? All of this. Because if this is all you have to explain Jesus to you, you have about 10% of what God wants to tell you. Footnotes. Yeah, footnotes according to Richard. The key that unlocks the house. Does that make sense? Okay, Romans 15.4. Do you guys think I'm lying when I say the, the New Testament says the entire Old Testament was, ultimately, was always ultimately about Jesus? I'm not lying. Romans 15.4, for whatever. So in 15.3, Paul quotes the Old Testament, okay? You can go read the passage yourself. Uh, the purpose tonight is not to uh, unpack that passage and, and to think through what Paul was writing primarily to the church. We're looking at his presupposition in verse 4. He says, whatever was written. Talk about broad, all-encompassing language, right? Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scripture we might have hope. Peter says this too. Peter said that the prophets knew they were writing to us. That Peter passage that I gave you, 1 Peter 1, 10 to 12. That's pretty out outrageous really. That Paul says, whatever was written in former days. And he uses language for the age before Christ. That was written for our instruction. And most of us don't think the Old Testament is a place for encouragement and hope. Isn't that fascinating? He said, this is the place of endurance, encouragement, and hope. If you understand that it was always being written by God to make a big deal about Jesus. That God's purpose was always to make the gospel 
glorious and rich and beautiful. Okay, so here we go. The first of, of two diagrams, the first of two visuals. This one, I think, simpler than the next. Number one, so find the one on the box. Because Jesus claims and the New Testament authors presume. Number two, that the entire Old Testament was ultimately leading to God's saving work in Jesus. Number three, the New Testament church can enter into the Old Testament with the expectation and anticipation that we will primarily be led to the salvation we now have in Jesus. You know how they say it to communicators, tell them what you're going to say, tell them, and then tell them what you told them? This picture is me telling you what I told you. So reflect. The New Testament does not presume that the Old Testament was a failed endeavor, nor an agenda now on hold, nor an idea that was made obsolete by the incarnation of Jesus. The New Testament teaches that the Old Testament was ultimately about Jesus, was ultimately written by God to point to Jesus, was always to be fulfilled by Jesus, and can only ever be understood in light of Jesus. So we violate God's purpose for the Old Testament when we try to apply it to our lives apart from Jesus and the gospel. What are your thoughts so far? Do we have thoughts? Yeah. Sure. She said, "Church changes how you look at something like David and Goliath." At first, I thought you were accusing me of such thing. <laughs> no, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Well, I feel sorry for them. I feel sorry. Look what they're missing. Yeah. C- certainly, there are folks out there who would say none of the Old Testament was primarily written to lead us to Jesus. And, and most people would say some of the Old Testament was, was written to primarily lead us to Jesus. But I'm just telling you, that if you want to enter in with expectation and anticipation, you just might as well believe what the Bible says, which is all of it. You know, I'm sorry, sir, you were going to say oh, something? I, I, you used the word discovery. That's, that's almost a Sure. We are. But just because, in the same way that the New Testament talks about the New Age... Yeah, so I'll ju- I would just say the church in the New Testament age. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would just say that on this, this side of Jesus, I wasn't trying to, I would just say no, church. Right. Sure. Recently, a really popular preacher said that yes. in Atlanta. Right. Right. Good. And so what I would say is, I would say that when we come back from the break, we're, we're going to address some of those realities, and we're going to see what the New Testament says about the law. We're going to see what the New Testament says about sacrifices. We're going to see what the New Testament says about wrath. 
okay? So you could go about this two ways. There's another really important person in my life. She's not quite as important as me, but she should be. That's my wife, and uh, that was confession. And I said to her, this is really what I want to do in the workshop. I want to show them from 50,000 feet what the New Testament says, and then I also want to show them some particular examples from the New Testament. And she said, you should start with the particular examples and then tell them about the paradigm. And that's because that's how she approaches life. Like, I think if I were to show you 30 times that the New Testament says this is about Jesus, eventually they have to say, okay, I think the whole thing's about Jesus. Right? But instead I decided to tell you the whole thing's about Jesus. And we're going to talk about some particular things the New Testament specifically teaches about Jesus through the Old Testament. And then again, my hope is that when you leave tonight, you will never, ever come this way into the Old Testament. You'll always come this way through the cross. And your number one question will not be, well, I'll just say what your number one question will be. What does this tell me about Jesus? Because I I promise you that's a more enjoyable and biblically accurate way to, to read David and Goliath. It, it would take at least one semester uh, of a seminary-level class to unpack all of these realities. So I just need you to understand that this says, number two, a few particulars within the paradigm. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to talk about a few particular realities in the Old Testament. And I want to talk about what the New Testament says about those realities and how they... Uh, find their fulfillment in or how they are met in or how they point to or bear witness to Jesus. So if you are here waiting for one of these realities to be talked about tonight, um, I can't necessarily promise you that we're going to be able to get to that, but I can promise you that Drew or Jonathan or some of the other elders, some of the other teachers, some of Ashley, they will probably love to hang out with you and talk about those things more. Yes, sir? I see people endeavor towards it. It's hard to pull off on a regular, on an ongoing way. But yeah, I, I thought about it. Yeah. Like if I hit if I hit the lotto and I could do just CBR Journal, I could get a day ahead of everyone in India and do that. And yeah, that would be fun. And ba- but basically, what I would do is I'd get my ESV Study Bible and just say what they said, and I would put that in there. So I might as well just tell people to buy the ESV Study Bible. I think it's just a matter of time. I think there is a there is a potential solution. So I think there, yeah, it's it's a it's potential, unrealized potential. Okay, so <clears throat> the moral law. What do I mean when I say the moral law? So now we're talking about realities. So what I want to do is I want to pick some really big particulars. Let's say that this this whole area right here is the quote moral law in the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? It starts with the ten, it's summarizing the Ten Commandments. Yeah, so when I say moral law, I don't mean the laws that are just pertaining to Israel as a country. And I don't mean sort of the laws related to how God wanted them to worship. I mean the moral law is, is the description of the person who gets to hang out with God. The moral law is the description of the person who is righteous. Does it make sense? So the moral law. So 
if you think that the moral law was given by God as a description of what the Israelite had to do to earn a relationship with him, you would be mistaken. Because in Galatians 2 and 3, Paul is very, very specific. He's very blunt. He said God did not give the law to the Israelites for them to earn their own righteousness. He actually gave them that law to imprison them, to keep them from thinking that they could earn their own righteousness. So Paul actually says, in Romans as well, that the law was given to convince the people of God that they couldn't do it. And so what did the Pharisees do when they felt like they couldn't do it? They tried harder, and they put other laws around the law. Right? And Paul's like, the whole time, God had you under a guardian. Do you know what that guardian language is in Galatians 3? Are you familiar with this? Wealthy Greco-Roman families would hire an uneducated slave to, to have responsibility for their kid from age 6 to 16. And at age 16, that's when they believed that they were worthy of having a relationship with their father. So don't get too bent out of shape about the metaphor. He's basically saying the law was, was somewhat a, uh, a jailer, but somewhat a guardian escorting you to the Father to receive righteousness from him. Does that make sense? So Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish law, I came to fulfill it. So Jesus understands that he didn't show up to find out who did really well and built their own righteousness. He came to accomplish that righteousness and then give it to his people in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So if you can also remember this, that Jesus will quote the law in the New Testament, and you know what he's quoting? Psalms. Not Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He's quoting one of, the, one of the various psalms that describes the person who gets to hang out with God. So you can't let your mind think law of God and just think the Ten Commandments or the Pentateuch. It's the law of God, when the New Testament speaks of the law of God, it's speaking of the righteous person who gets to hang out with God. It's, it's, that, it's the, 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 the instructions of the rules in regards to the life of the person who gets to hang out with God. Okay, does it make sense? So someone read the red there. We should never. Yes, ma'am, please. So if we believe what the New Testament says about the law, that particular reality in the Old Testament, then any time we read the Old Testament and see the description of a righteous, perfect, holy person, like, didn't do it, on my own I can't do it, Jesus did it, Jesus does it in me. So instead of condemning myself, I run to Jesus and I get my righteousness from Him, right? And then I... 
rejoice in the fact that by His Spirit who lives in me, I am now more righteous, I'm now more obedient than I've ever been. I'm now more like the person who gets to hang out with, Jesus, with, with the Father, with God, okay? You, you, you follow that? So that's what I mean when I say that's a particular example within the paradigm, is that these New Testament authors are helping us understand what God was up to the entire time when he was uh, putting the moral law into the Old Testament. All right, B, the wrath of God. What do I mean by wrath? That was, good, that was a good sound effect. God's legal anger against sin. What else? Right and proper. Anger against sin. I'm sorry? Proper. I've been watching Downton Abbey. It's his judgment, right? Yeah, okay, good. So in the Old Testament, God's wrath, from the Israelites' perspective, seemed to come and go. His wrath, his judgment, his anger in response to sin would be on them, then withdrawn from them with the threat of returning to them. So if you, if you kind of just read through the Old Testament, you're like, is God mad right now or not? I can't really tell. Because sometimes he's mad and sometimes he's not. So like Psalm 83, uh, 3 to 5 is, is an example of this. Listen to this. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? You see that the psalmist is saying, I remember a time when we were under your wrath, but you took it away. And now we're under it again, and we're wondering, are we going to be under your wrath forever? Does that make sense? So the wrath, the wrath of God is God's hatred for sin. It's God's judgment for sin. It's the part of God that's related to his holiness that eradicates evil. And the Israelites knew that there were seasons where they were under it and seasons where they weren't. Okay? So that being said, according to the New Testament, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Said differently, Jesus is the satisfaction of God's just and awful wrath for our sins. So I gave you five references there. All of them use this word for propitiation. Propitiation is different from atonement in this way. Atonement... Is, is, a, is something that happened in the Old Testament that suspended God's wrath. Propitiation is something in the New Testament that is the satisfaction of God's wrath. So what would the Israelites do to get God to remove his wrath from them? Kill an animal. Sacrifice, right? But that did not do away with God's wrath. It just suspended God's wrath. Right? But in Christ, God's wrath has been poured out, absorbed, satisfied, dealt with, so that now God cannot treat you with wrath. He would be wrong to be angry with you for your sin because he got angry with Jesus on the cross. And so when you begin to realize what the New Testament is saying in regards to propitiation, you can now enter into the Old Testament through the cross, and let's say this is how much of the Old Testament is about wrath. You can look at all that and say, I love it that my God hates evil. Because when I see evil happening, I hate it too. 
And I love it that my God is righteous and holy, and he has a plan to eradicate evil. And he will create a new heavens and a new earth where there is no evil. I love that. But I also love and preeminently love that he is able to keep me, even though there are parts of me that are now evil, because he poured out his wrath on his son on the cross. Does that make sense? And so what the New Testament does is it teaches me how to think about all this old wrath. So I'm not afraid to go into the Old Testament anymore. I'm sobered for sure, but not afraid. But whenever I see God's holy and awesome and praiseworthy wrath, I don't run back to the New Testament and say, this is a God over here that doesn't have wrath. I run back to Jesus and I say, this God still has wrath for everyone who hasn't hidden themselves in Jesus. And I need to go tell my neighbors who are currently under the wrath of God to run to Jesus. Because it's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. It's the same God who has created a way for you and I to be with him by the righteousness of Christ. Through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So it says here, related. The tension created by a God that is unabashedly just and merciful. So when God introduces himself to Moses, this is what he says. This is Exodus 36 or 34. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Listen to this. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. You're like, well, which is it? Forgiveness or not? I'm, I'm confused. So the, the, the two words said of God more often than any other two words in the Old Testament are steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love is grace and mercy. Faithfulness is promise keeper. More often than not, saying he will keep his promises to punish evil. You're like, hold on a second. Those two are opposed to each other. Which is it? Is he going to be gracious? Or is he going to punish evil? Amen. But mercy triumphs over judgment at the cross. Okay? So then, another related, the so-called holy wars in the Old Testament. The holy wars in the Old Testament, as uncomfortable as it is, and as lamentable as it is, the holy wars of the Old Testament are all about God's wrath. So I can't give you an explanation for holy war that makes you okay, like, oh, let's go dancing now. But I can help you tie it back into wrath, where you do want a God that does hate evil and does something about it, but you also love the God who absorbed the Father's wrath for you. So here are just some quick thoughts on holy war, okay? Things to remember when you come across the geopolitical violence of the Old Testament. You ready? And this is primarily for you and yours, the yours people, the people you're trying to pour into. Number one, it was clearly God doing the fighting. So when you see holy war in the Old Testament, you see God doing the fighting. Uh, where, where did Pharaoh's army get wiped out? The Red Sea. What did the Israelites have to do with that? Run! Right? Uh, the circumcision at Gilgal, Joshua 5. You remember that? We're going to cross over into the promised land, and we can see right there is Jericho. 
And before we go and fight them, we're going to put all of our men on their back, on their backs, and, and completely incapacitate them for seven to ten days, circumcising them without any anesthesia. No wonder all they could do in chapter 6 is walk around Jericho a few times. I call that the run walk at Jericho. Like, what happened with Gideon's army in Judges 7? He kept reducing it, kept reducing it, because who's going to do the fighting? The Lord's going to do it. Why? Because he is a God of wrath. Period. Uh, Paul in the New Testament summarizes a large part of the Holy War in the Old Testament this way. After destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, God gave them their land as an inheritance. Who destroyed them? God destroyed them. Two, it was clearly God punishing sinners for pride, idolatry, unbelief, injustice, and oppression. Do you know what ordinarily is the last refrain uh, in the Old Testament when holy war is about to happen? They're sacrificing their children. That God would say, their evil has come into my presence. I can see their idolatry. I can see their oppression. I can see their evil. And they're sacrificing their children. And he's like, that's it. We must eradicate the evil. Third, Israel was not about ethnicity, but worship, faith, and the fear of God. The Old Testament presumed that non-Jews could and would join Israel. So don't make the mistake and think it's racism to say that it was about Jewish people and non-Jewish people. It was about Israelites and non-Israelites. And Israelites were identified by circumcision. So that's why Egyptians fled with them and joined the people of God. Okay, so it was God fighting. It was God doing something about uh, oppression and evil. It was not about ethnicity. It was about worship. And then you have to remember that Israel was on the receiving end of holy war. When did that happen? The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the north against the south. Various times in Judges, yeah. So as soon as someone, if someone could understand that, that, the, that the, uh, the Israelites also were punished by God through other nations, the real, the real discomfort with holy war is, is wrath. That there is a God who will hold accountable people for their evil and selfishness. But that same God has provided a way for us to be with him, not by building up our own righteousness, but by receiving the righteousness of his son given to us in his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. So I can't make it comfortable. I can't make it go away, but it's usually not what people think when they want to talk about um, their unbelief in God because of, because of holy war. Okay, the tabernacle and the temple. The tabernacle and the temple, right? So what was the point of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament? It's where they met God. It's where God put His presence. It's where God made a way for His people to commune with Him and to have intimacy with Him and to be with Him. Of course, by way of a sacrifice. (laughs) Of course, not uh, within the Holy of Holies because then they would die because... His holiness was going to be too much for them. But the temple and the tabernacle were God saying to his people, build it exactly like this because this is what it looks like in heaven. And so I want my people to know what it's like to be in my heavenly presence. So the temple and the tabernacle were all about God 
wanting to have intimacy uh, with his people. So in the New Testament, uh, Jesus says very clearly that he is the greater temple. Right? So if you look in, for example, John 2.19, you're going to see Jesus talking about himself as the temple. If you look in 1 Corinthians 3.16, you're going to see that, that we are now the temple. How are we the temple? I'm sorry? The indwelling spirit. You talk about intimacy. Not just every now and then you go up to the temple and you offer a, a, an animal sacrifice and you sort of get close to God, but God has moved in. He's within us, right? Will there be a temple in the new heavens and new earth? No. Revelation 21, 22. Because God is with his people. And the veil has been torn. And we will be face to face with God. So when you read, I feel like I feel like the tabernacle and temple are a big part of the Old Testament. We'll say that much. And and the New Testament is saying God was wanting you to know how much he desired to be in relationship with you. And the God-man, God with us, Emmanuel, came to live among us to be in relationship with us. And through his death and resurrection, he can now send his spirit to live inside of us. And we're the temple now. And one day, in the new heavens and new earth, with our glorious bodies, he and his glorious body will be face to face with him, and there will be no need for a temple. And so it wasn't in 300 B.C. that God said, I got an idea. Let's say that Jesus is the greater temple. We can deal with all that. by No, the whole time God's like, we're going to have Jesus be the greater temple. So let's write a whole lot about the temple and the tabernacle here so that these folks can enter in through the lens and the paradigm of the cross and the gospel and learn more about the gospel. My favorite, not well, the priest and the, sacrif the sacrificial system. For the sake of time, who will read that one? The red. So all that red there is written out of Hebrews 4-10, 4, 4 John 1-29, Ephesians 5-2, and many others. The New Testament says, anytime you read about priests and sacrifices in the Old Testament, know that that was to make way for the spotless Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, and that would create a yearning for the ultimate high priest who didn't have to offer sacrifices for himself, but could just be offered up as a sacrifice for everyone else. Once. Amen. That's important. So I feel like the priest and the sacrifice, that's a big part of the Old Testament. And that, but that particular reality has been, we have been told how to think about that in the New Testament. And we're told how to think about it in such a way I go in with anticipation, not trepidation. Okay? Now my favorite, the Passover. The Passover. In response to Pharaoh's unwillingness to free the Israelites from slavery, the Lord sent ten plagues into the land of Egypt. During the tenth plague, the Lord himself went through the land to kill the firstborn of every family. This was, in, of course, response to the fact that the Egyptian Pharaoh killed the firstborn uh, of the Israelites. So this is justice. This is God's wrath and God's judgment, but it's just. 
The Lord told Moses that this plague would hit the Israelites as well unless the blood of a sacrificed animal was painted on their lintel and doorposts. The Lord told Moses in Exodus 12.23 that when he saw the blood, he would pass over or hover over the door and would not allow the destroyer to enter their house to strike them. So when you and I hear the word Passover because we watched an animated film called Prince of Egypt, we tend to think of Passover being a big jump where this wispy little spirit sees blood on the doorpost and jumps over the house and passes over the house. Passover is about the worst English translation you can possibly have for the Hebrew Pesach. Pesach means to hover and cover. It's the exact opposite of jump. And so God was very clear that on the 10th plague that he himself would pass through the land in judgment. And listen to that verse again. Exodus 12, 23. When he saw the blood, speaking of Yahweh, he would pass over, hover over the door, and would not allow the destroyer to enter their house to strike them. God is doing two things on Passover night. He is entering into houses and striking the firstborn, and he is blocking himself from entering into the Israelites' house to strike their firstborn. Can you think of another time in history where God's doing two things? Very, very specifically, 1 Corinthians, he is our Passover lamb. He is the spotless lamb, the firstborn of God, who dies so that we don't have to. So when it's dark from noon to three, on that horrific day, it's dark because the Passover lamb has been sacrificed and his blood is going on the lintel and the doorpost. Does that make sense? So in the Passover meal that the Israelites commemorated every year, they reminded themselves that God punishes evil but that God would punish another in their place. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we find out the one that God punishes is, is himself. So whenever you see the Passover in the Old Testament, as a Christian, you are not violating the Old Testament by entering into the Old Testament through the cross. You're honoring God's design. Entering in with the lens of the cross, expecting to learn more about the gospel. All right, Jesus as the greater and better. The New Testament speaks of Jesus as the greater and better when referencing characters in the Old Testament. As the greater and better, Jesus provided perfection where every Old Testament figure failed in contrast to him, and he provided superiority where every Old Testament figure did well and foreshadowed him. So can you think of some of the things in the New Testament that say that says Jesus is the greater and better than this Old Testament reality? Greater, I'm sorry, priest? Greater than Moses? Greater than David? He's greater than the first Adam. Sorry? Yeah, sure. He's the better, he's the better temple. Right? Um, he is the better priest, the better sacrifice, the better Jacob, the better Solomon, the better Jonah. So if you just actually just stop and listen to how often the New Testament says he's greater and better, that is giving you a paradigm for reading about all these people in the Old Testament. 
that when they do well, I don't say, man, I hope I can be like them. They were in that way doing well to foreshadow the one who would always do well. And when they blew it, they were making me ready for the one who would never blow it. We don't go in the Old Testament and say, be like that person. We go in the Old Testament and say, be like the better. Does that make sense? So basically, this is just another way in which the New Testament is telling me how to enter into the Old Testament to make it about what Jesus did, uh, is doing, and will do, and not about what I have done, uh, am doing, or have to do. Okay? So now, we have five minutes. We did not get to all of these by any means because I had already printed the material. Is there, is there one that the class would like to work through on their own? So the, all the names in the Old Testament, all the names, he has a name above every other name. I think all the names show that God's a personal God, he's a relational God, he's an intimate God, he cares about people individually. But I also think there's a sense to where if you get tired of reading all that, those names, there's only one name you need to know. Jesus. Well, you got a question for the class. Go ahead. Yeah, so I would say the reason we don't is from Colossians 2. Let no one pass judgment on you in question of food and drink with regard to festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So I would think the best answer to that is some people choose to celebrate those because it helps them think big, big th thoughts about Jesus, and others don't. And the New Testament just says don't pass judgment. Good question. The class will answer the next one. What book in the New Testament speaks the most about what we're learning tonight? What book? Hebrews. Hebrews as a book is all about how Jesus is better and how he makes the old covenant obsolete by fulfilling it and by inaugurating a better one. What one chapter in the Bible, apart from Hebrews, speaks the most of this? I think it's Luke 24 be my guess. It's got the road to a maze. It's got Jesus in the upper room. Yep. So someone asked about the Sabbath, which is what, right, well, it is Saturday. Um, and so I would say that's a very, very complicated conversation. Um, I would say this, to the extent, whatever the Ten Commandments meant when it said remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, Jesus did that. So first and foremost, I enter into that study, not looking to establish my righteousness, feeling the pressure of it all, but enjoying the righteousness I have in him and feeling the freedom to, to look at it, think about it, figure out how to honor God in it. Um, a lot that's going on in the Old Testament related to the Sabbath, Colossians 2, was there's a lot going on with the Sabbath, according to Colossians 2, 
that was a shadow of the things to come in Christ. So in the way in which the Sabbath was spoken of in the ceremonial law, that is how to worship God, that's been fulfilled in Christ. That being said, I'm still one who believes in keeping the Sabbath. And by that I mean one day a week. And I go back to Genesis in the creation ordinance where God rested on the seventh day. So because the New Testament church worshipped on Sunday, I don't think it has to be a particular day. That's where Paul talks about some value one day as more than another. So I don't think of, I don't think it has to be Saturday, but I would highly recommend that we ask, what did Jesus do on Saturday, and how do I do that one day a week in my life? Does that make sense? So that's, that, that's a very complicated topic and hotly debated. You could ask Jonathan and... Yeah, absolutely. So it can, become, it can become for me a way in which I'm earning my righteousness, which is unbelief, which is disgusting to God. But it could be that now with Christ in me, I want, he is making me to want the righteousness of God. And to the extent that Sabbath is a part of that righteousness, I want it. Not to earn his approval, but because I have his approval. Not to earn life, but to enjoy the life he's given me. So yeah, absolutely. Everything we do that is good can be something that we're doing to get God to love us or it can be us doing it because God loves us. And that's where the motives of the heart come in. And that's where we have to be thinking through what's driving me. We have to, guard, we have to think about our emotions. Our emotions will tell us what's driving us. And then we have to live in community and let other people say, you're driven right now. That doesn't feel human. That doesn't feel loving. That doesn't feel faithful. That feels like works righteousness to me. So, good, great point. Sure. Absolutely. 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 Yep. That's why all of life is repentance. I mean, that's why even as believers, all of life is repentance. Because it's not just the bad things you do, it's the good things you do for the bad reasons. And it's, it's the good things you don't do for, for bad reasons. So, All right, so if you would, this is a very complex diagram. It needs to be cleaned up. I kind of threw it together around 3 o'clock this afternoon. But this is me telling you what I told you, if you're visually inclined. And again, the numbers are really important. I wish that this was on a screen behind you, and they, these things would appear one at a time so you wouldn't be overwhelmed. But number one, so see number one, when we see the New Testament's overarching paradigm for the Old Testament, so that was the first point, right? If you look down under number one, it says the Old Testament is fulfilled by Jesus. The Old Testament bears witness to Jesus. The Old Testament needs Jesus. The Old Testament foreshadows Jesus. The Old Testament is made fully known by Jesus. I just took some of those New Testament words that speak paradigmatically or as a paradigm for uh, the Old Testament. So when you see that, and then two, when you see a few particulars of that paradigm, so when you see how the law points to Jesus, when you see how the priests and the sacrifices point to Jesus, when you see how even Jonah can point to Jesus, when you see that, number three, we can read each particular passage of the Old Testament through the Jesus lens with the expectation and anticipation that each passage can show us more about the gospel. That's my goal for tonight. 
is that number three. That you and I take church, New Testament off of it. As the church, we would go through the cross into the Old Testament. Make sense? So who would read the Reflect for me? Sound good? So I'm just, that's my goal for tonight is that right here, if we get confused, we're just like, I I don't know exactly how, but I remember all these passages and I have enough particulars to know that I'm supposed to run to Jesus right now. That wherever I am searching the scriptures, I don't go there trying to earn life. I go there to learn about the eternal life that I have when I run to Jesus. And then over time, Honestly, I like the Old Testament more than the New Testament. I can't say it's been true my whole life, but I do. That I've gotten to a point where this anticipation and expectation, this mystery being revealed, this need being met, this emptiness being filled, I, I like that. I like drama. I like a good story. And so that's, that's my desire is for CBR Journal participants to have expectation and anticipation because all of it's about Jesus. And then when we feel trepidation and hesitation, it's because we're fundamentally saying, I only think some of it's about Jesus. Okay, so we've got 20 minutes, and what I want to do is I want to quickly go through Psalm 15. So this is your last piece of paper. If you have a CBR Journal, you'll know that this is the journaling guide that appears uh, 100 times over in your CBR journal, and we're going to go through Psalm 15. And I just want to remind you that this psalm is one of those psalms that the New Testament calls law. Okay? Because it literally says, Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? And the old us would think this is a description of what I have to do to be with God. But the new us says this is a description of Jesus. And in his death, I get to be with God. And when we enter into this psalm with that understanding, we are not violating it, doing some sort of judo on it. We're reading it as those who, uh, when it is fully known. We're reading it as God intended from the very beginning. Okay? So listen to these words. O Lord... Who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does, and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe, against the innocent. He who does these things shall never be moved. All right, so adoration. What does this tell us about God's attributes and actions? Yeah, no, I want you to talk. We're going to talk and write. We're short on time. Sorry. 
I'm sorry? Yeah, so he's holy. So this, is, this description of the per, is of the individual who gets to be with him because he is all of these things. Good, so go ahead, keep going. He's holy, truthful. He's exalted on a hill. He's also on the move. Sojourn in your tent. He's, so, so he is transcendent and imminent. Yeah, so what's that? He's hospitable. He likes people. He likes people. Yeah, good. He's not against us. He's friendly. I'm sorry? He still hates evil. Yeah, he still hates... Here's some tension. I'm sorry? He's truthful, yes. What about once you're in his presence, you will not be moved? He binds the strong man. Not one can be plucked out of his hand. You're in an unshakable kingdom. That once you're in relation, once you're in union with him, you cannot be separated from him. Right? All right, confession. How does this convict us of sin? Where shall we start? <laughs> He's truthful. I'm not. I'm guilty. I'm not blameless. I slander. I do take up a reproach against a friend. I'm sorry? Easily moved. Good. Okay, what about this one? Speaks truth in his heart. Anyone here lie to themselves? Me. Yeah. Isn't that fascinating? What else? Does not put out his money at interest? Yikes. I mock people who fear the Lord. I do not honor them. I think that it's better. There are moments in my life where I think it would be better to live like the world until Jesus comes back and then get to be in heaven. So I fundamentally believe it would be better to be, there are times in my life where I'm like, it'd be better to be sort of be away from God and not having to obey his commands because when the, the devil lies to me I, I think his commands are burdensome and not life okay thanksgiving how does this tell you about jesus's salvation of you past present and future because jesus did all these things i get to dwell with him that is why god wrote psalm 15 that is the ultimate point of this passage. Did God have other uses for this passage across time? Sure. But right now in the Holy Scriptures, it's included in the Holy Scriptures to tell you about the gospel. So this is a beautiful list of Jesus. Where do you see, so now Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where do you see Jesus behaving like this description? You see what I'm asking? Yeah, the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, absolutely. Did he ever swear to his own hurt and not change? The garden. 
He had made a deal with God before Adam and Eve to let this whole story climax in him and the cross. And he's like, is there any other way? Not my will, your will be done. This is not about us. This is about Jesus' salvation of us. And we're being told tonight by the New Testament that God wrote this all along so that we would enter in and see Psalm 15 that way. All right, so how, how does this supplication, how does, how does this pass? Oh, last thing on, on uh, Thanksgiving. I just need you to know that the new heavens and the new earth, it's going to be completely full of people who follow this description. And you can be one of those people. Presumably you are one of those people. There will be a day where I can't not do this. That's fantastic. That's the future salvation. That in my future, God is going to save me. And he is going to eradicate all the evil that is within me. And I'll still be alive because he eradicated Jesus on the cross. All right, supplication. What one thing in here just inflames your imagination and gets you excited about what God's doing in your life? Because God's doing this in you. What one thing gets you excited? I look forward to not lying to myself anymore. Because I tell myself all the time I'm unworthy. I tell myself all the time. I'm pro- I tell my wife as a joke, but it's sort of not a joke. It sure does look fun being a Christian. Because like, she has more peace than me and stuff. Because I, I get anxiety from believing the lies I tell myself. That God can't control the future. God can't provide. He's done really good for 43 years, but I don't think he can handle the next 43. So I, I, the thought of speaking truth in my own heart, that is very attractive to me. So what about you? I long for the day I use my tongue to build up and set of slander and tear down. Me too. I'm sorry? Anger. Anger. Yeah. Yeah. Long for the day to believe that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Me too. A willingness to be hurt for the better of someone else. That is beautiful. I'm not committing myself to it. I'm just saying it is beautiful. (laughs) It is heroic, and I would like to see it in myself. That's right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, this is not about bankers. This is about doing something for other people because of what God's done for me. Not doing things for other people so that I can get it back. No strings attached. Yeah, that's great. Which would mean no bitterness. Right? So there's lots of no disappointment when they don't pay me back. 
Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, part of the good news, and that's what's going on in the supplication box, is it's not just Christ for me, it's Christ in me. That's right. So Christ for me is the thanksgiving, right? And then the Christ in me is supplication. It, it's reasonable for me to now daydream about being this person. Now, the, the trick is that I grow through repentance. So in this moment, I'm not presumptive. I'm honest, but I'm hopeful. So that's repentance and faith. They go together. So repentance without faith is, is very cynical. Faith without repentance is pointless. What do you need faith for? But repentance and faith together, that's, that's the place where we live. Christ for me, Christ in me. So good, good thought. Okay, so what time are we supposed to be done? Are we done? I can't remember. Oh, gosh, we got 17 minutes. Okay. Uh, what's that? Q&A for Jonathan. I'm just kidding. So, I would like to ask you this. What tools or what resources are you aware of that have helped you grow in this reality through uh, your, your Christianity? This is obviously not the first time you all have encountered this idea. Sometimes I do speak in environments where this is like a whole new idea for people. That's not the case here. So my question would be, what tools and resources has, have God used in, has God used in your life to shape you in this? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's instruction, yeah. Yeah. Good. 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 Do you remember what that resource was? Cool. Okay. And that and that author is is operating in this paradigm. Gotcha. Hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah, good. It does. It sounds like that does help to think about how Jesus would see this whole thing. Which, I, that, that's, um, that's a big part of what we're trying to talk about tonight is to see the whole thing and not to get lost in one, sp- one specific spot. But, but, okay, other resources. So Jesus Storybook Bible. Everybody's raising their hand. That, that resource has been so helpful for adults. I hope kids have been helpful, helped by it too. Yep. Yep. It's great. So, yep. I do think the ESV study Bible is better than most, but I, I prefer the gospel transfer. So what you, I agree with you. The gospel transformation, that's right. It's in a different realm than all the other study Bibles. In the study Bible realm, I think the ESV study Bible does the best 
with helping you understand how Old Testament passages point to Jesus. But it's still scholastic. So absolutely. Behold the Lamb. Is that um, Andrew Peterson? Yeah, okay. That's cool. Behold the Lamb. So, so uh, some songs by Andrew Peterson that can help you, not just with this paradigm, but help you worship Jesus. What were you going to say over here, something? Yes. Cool. Yeah, and I would say the preaching here, undoubtedly, is, is a Christ-centered preaching. So when in the Old Testament, do, is it, I, I'm assuming that this is true. If not, I'll tell the Presbytery. But I'm assuming that you're getting a regular example of how to go faithfully from the Old Testament to Jesus, right? Good, yeah. Don't go to a church where that's not happening. Awesome. Very cool. Awesome. Nancy Guthrie is the name? Okay. She's a writer. Okay, cool. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Absolutely. So the person of Jesus uh, is a Bible study that looks at episodes in the life of Christ, but obviously because of where Christ fits in redemptive history, it has sections in it where it goes back and explains things, helps you understand how Christ fulfills them. All right? Last thing from me. Last thing from me. I think I've told you guys this, um, but, uh, but... with this whole anticipation, hesitation, expectation, trepidation, did I tell you about uh, when we had a dog? No, it didn't last long. That's a very sad story. I'll have to tell you another time. <laughs> but uh, the kids would take, they would have a week assigned to them of when they were supposed to just monitor the backyard for, for droppings. And, and whenever it was Gigi's turn, she was the youngest. She did not do a very good job. So can you imagine the kids going into the backyard knowing that Gentry hadn't done her chore? Can you see them? Can you visualize them? Yeah. (laughs) Trust me, they were tiptoeing. There was fear. There was hesitation. It's like, I really want to go get my bike from the garage, but who knows what I'm going to run into. Right? So that's that's what the enemy does to us when we think, about the Old Testament as some of it's about Jesus. There's some stuff in there I'd like to get to, but I've got to tiptoe around and be careful that I don't run into something that I don't want to step in. Right? And then secondly, I've, I've told you all how we do Easter egg hunts, right? No? Wow, I thought I did. So we do Easter egg hunts this way, the same way we do Halloween. Do you know how we do Halloween? Oh, we, all of our kids go out, and they bring everything back in, and they put it in a pile, and we disperse it evenly. Because I was the youngest and I never had as much candy as my brother. And because that's what it says to do in Exodus with the manna. Yeah, so for us, there's a golden egg on Easter. You know what that is? It's a big egg with lots of money in it. 
But it's always five $10 bills. You know why? Five kids. And the youngest never finds it. Ever. <laughs> I should probably see a counselor about this. But how do you see them running into the front yard for the Easter egg hunt? They can't wait to get out there. And community Bible reading, they know that we're going to come back together, put it in a pile, and share it. When we're reading the Bible biblically, we will do it in a community like that. I can't wait to get in there. That it's going to tell me more about my Savior and my gospel, and his gospel, and it's going to be better in community. Tonight, Psalm 15 was better because we listened to one another. And we know more about each other. And we know more about Jesus because we did it together. That's, that's the whole goal of the Community Bible Reading Journal is intimacy with God through his word, intimacy with one another in his word. All right, let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that, that the hero of the Bible is Jesus. And that you have not, uh, that, there's no question, if we just stop and read what you've written, you have clearly told us that he's the hero. And you have clearly said that all of it is primarily about him and, and how he has saved us, how he is saving us, and, and how he will save us. But we also thank you that there's some mystery. We also thank you that there's depth to it. We, we also thank you that that there are parts that we're still coming to understand at this point in our life. And when we understand them, Jesus is better. And Jesus is richer. And Jesus is more glorious and gracious than he was the day before. We thank you that he is the point. And once we get that, that's all that matters. And we also thank you that each and every day you show us more about how you love us so well in Christ. Would you open our eyes to see more of your gospel in your scriptures. Would you give us an insatiable appetite that you satisfy with the gospel? I do pray for my friends at Redeemer Winter Haven that they would uh, be connecting with you through your word and they would be connecting with one another in your word. It's in Christ's name that I pray these things. Amen. Yeah, thank you.